Welcome to the Branches Podcast. Following the lead of Jesus, we seek to embrace people regardless of their background or their present ground in the hope they find holy ground. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about the reckless love of Jesus or our community of faith, please visit our website at branchesoc.com. Awesome to hear everybody talking with each other. It's so hard to reel it in and make you stop talking. I'd rather have you talk the entire time. Uh, Good morning. My name is Michael Bischoff, and it's good to be back here. It's been a long time since I've been here. How many of you remember me or seen me before? Just to know I'm in a good... Oh, thank you. I feel loved once again. I was on sabbatical a lot of last year, which is one reason why you didn't see me. We were actually here with you on Christmas Eve, for those of you that were here. Our family was just hanging out, but that's why I wasn't around. I got the privilege of burning out first, which necessitated a sabbatical, and uh, you don't want to do that. You want to be preemptive in doing that, but anyway, I had a wonderful time taking sabbatical and resting, and a lot of amazing things happened on that sabbatical, one of which I'll tell you this morning, but it's so good to be back with you this morning. And I feel like this is really sacred ground. Uh, My wife reminded me last night that it was three years ago this weekend that um, Boog came back to preach his first sermon after surgery with his lung transplant. And you know that, but it's it's hard to believe three years ago to to, to this weekend, which was Easter Sunday. Um, Easter is a different time every year, so that's why it doesn't match up exactly. But that's why this is sacred ground, amen? This is just such a place that God has done things, amazing miracles in people's lives. And your pastor, Boog, is just one of them. So I hope you appreciate him a lot. I get to say that because he's not here today, right? So love on him in great ways, him and Steph and their family, as well as the rest of your staff and all the good things and all the leaders here that do such wonderful things. This is a fun church. I love coming here. I look forward to coming here. In fact, a little secret, this is the first church I've gotten to speak at since coming back from sabbatical. So I feel a little rusty, and so, so have some grace with me today. I, I need some help, because it's one of those things that's like getting back on the bike, and you know you can do it, but it feels a little wobbly at first. So anyway, I'm practicing on you, again, coming back from sabbatical. So that's this morning, and uh, it's just going to be a good time. The title of this message is Resurrection Risks. Resurrection risks, because you're in this series talking about that if there's no resurrection, there would be no Christianity. There would be no lots of things. And the passage of scripture that was read, Matthew 28, I just find that passage so interesting, that long passage of scripture. And, and, and Jesus like rises from the dead. And do you notice who the first people are that catch it? The women. The women are like totally dialed in. They get, get it and understand it. And I think that's amazing, right? Women, come on. You were like a little quiet when I said that. <laughs> I think that's like really excited. So... They get it first, and then it gets to the disciples, okay, the 11 guys that are followers of Jesus. And notice what it said. Just, I want to highlight that last verse, and if you jot something down, it's Matthew 28, 17, that last verse that we stopped on there, and it says, but some doubted. And I find this interesting. So the, the women kind of get it. The guys doubt it. But when I saw that they doubted, some doubted about what had just happened, this whole story, this whole amazing miracle of Jesus being crucified, completely dead, three days in a grave, and then rising. It's just an amazing reality. And then some still doubted. But I had to honestly go. You know, I used to kind of think, I think, um, what was their problem? What a bunch of lame dudes. Um, they doubted? Seriously, he's standing right there? Now I look at it a little differently. When I see those words, I, I think, that's kind of my story, too. I don't always believe. I don't always just 
Yeah, God, you got it all in control, and everything's good about what just happened. I tend to be in a place now where I realize I doubt, and I wonder, and I bet some of you are there too. Um, and those of you that are there, where you find yourself doubting, and maybe doubting more than ever, there's some reasons for that. There's some re- I want to talk about that just a little bit. One of my favorite authors, Richard Rohr, has this quote. He says, believing in resurrection is trusting death. Believing in resurrection is trusting death. Well, what does that mean? When I started my sabbatical, it was last April 1st. It was last Easter Sunday that I started my sabbatical, April 1st. That would be a good day. Resurrection Sunday to start a sabbatical. As I look back on it now, I realize April 1st is also April Fool's Day, and that's probably a better holiday they sort of celebrated because it was an adventure going into this. April 1st, started sabbatical. April 9th, my mom died. That was hard. Nine days in, I'm like, God, what is that about? I didn't sign up for that. Um, I, she was dying a long, slow death, so we knew it was coming, but I'm now wanting to have a time to rest and step back because I literally was more burned out than I'd ever been in my entire life, which isn't a good thing when some of you know what I do. I come alongside leaders and help leaders not burn out. And I often tell them, you guys, you need to take a sabbatical. And they're like, well, Michael, tell me about your sabbaticals. They assume many sabbaticals. Michael, you've taken you because you rest wonderfully, right? I'd be like, "Mm, let me tell you about Joe's sabbatical and Fred's sabbatical because I'm a hypocrite and I haven't taken one yet. And I hadn't. And that's what it was like. But as I went into this place and my mom dies, I've never had so many thoughts about death and what happens after death. Some of you, I'm sure, have faced death this year in relationships, in family. Some of you have faced more living death in illness or disease, cancer or whatever. Some of you have faced it in the lives of others, the suffering and the pain that's there, and some doubted, some doubted. I ended my sabbatical the last week of December, and on December 26th, I woke up, and my wife had been up earlier than me, which is what usually happens in our house, and uh, she said, honey, bad news. I was on Facebook, and um, your friend and one of our partners at Soul Leader, the ministry that we have, 53 years old, Lake Tahoe, snowboarding with his family, face down in the snow. They could never rec- he never recovered. Died of a heart attack. The autopsy showed. 53 years old. April 9th, my mom dies. December 26th, Craig dies. My whole time of rest is bookended in death. I doubted. I doubted. And for some of us sitting here, you know, we're in this winter, it's, it's Lenten season. We're warming up for Easter, and Easter is an awesome celebration. I believe that. And yet, Easter can seem really irrelevant, I think, for many of us today, for a bunch of logical reasons. Why? It was 2,000 years ago that it happened. It's a long time ago. That's ancient history. I don't know about you in school. I never liked history class because that stuff was just old, and I'm about the new. I want to learn what's coming, not so much what's past. So it just seems far away, and it just feels disconnected. It's also in a place, it happened in a place that most of us have never been. How many of you, just curious, been to Israel ever? There's probably a couple of you, okay? A few of you have been to Israel. But most of us have never been to Jerusalem, the place where this supposed resurrection happened, right? So it's a little hard to relate when you, it's happened in a place where you've never been. Um, it's, it's funny when you do go there because my wife and I have been there once, we're going again in September, and uh, there's not even agreement about where the resurrection happened. There's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which tons of people are like, this is the place that it happened. 
and then there's the garden tomb, which everybody who doesn't believe it was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre believe it happened at the garden tomb, and they really don't like each other at all. It didn't happen there. It happened here. It happened here. They're arguing about where Jesus came back from the dead. How sad is that? Another reason it's hard to sometimes get your mind around this and believe. And honestly, just most of us probably grew up thinking Easter was more about bunnies and peeps. Kind of hard to relate to, right? Easter's sort of minimalized in our culture, right? It's just not taken real seriously. And honestly, if we were to, like, have a show of hands, and I'm not going to do this, but some of us might even doubt that the resurrection ever happened. It's a nice story. But really, we're kind of wondering, really? Crucified? Cross? All this blood? Spear in the side? All this thing? Three days in a tip? Comes back to life? Really? That doesn't match up with science. I'm not sure I can get behind that. I, I, I'm not so sure. Um, and I think Boog's going to deal with some of those things next week uh, as he talks about uh, the resurrection once again. But here's a question for you. Uh, are you living like there's resurrection or not? Are you living like there's resurrection or not? Because resurrection of Jesus, big R, resurrection, and resurrection, little r, are totally related. Does that make sense? You're going to track with me here for a minute. The resurrection of Jesus, big R, and resurrection as a reality in our lives are totally related. And I think we need to understand that. Now, can, I want to share a story with you, okay? Um, I, I, hope, I hope this is good for you. I know last week, Steph shared, and she shared her wonderful story, which I think is awesome. So sort of in that vein of sharing stories that um, are impacted by this resurrection reality, I want to share a little bit of my story. And I think bits and pieces of this have leaked out over the probably 10 times I think I've spoken to you here at Branches, but that was a long time ago. So I'll sneak up on it again and, and see where it leads us. But I grew up with no dad. I never knew my dad. I had a different last name than my mom. My grandma lived with us when I was a young child and helped raise us. My mom had actually quit high school early to support her own mother, and so, so she was uh, supporting her mom. And my grandma helped until I was eight years old, raised me as well. It was just my mom, my grandma, and me. And I grew up, my mom told me my dad died in an airplane crash when I was two years old. So, so I had a different last name, and I, I didn't understand that, but I just kind of accepted it because airplane crash, and there's not a lot of stuff left after an airplane crash, usually. I had one picture of my dad growing up, and I honestly didn't think too much about my dad until Father's Day rolled around. And at school, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to make Father's Day gifts or cards or something in school. And all the kids would make a Father's Day card, and I would go, what am I supposed to do now? And I, you know, and, and raise my hand, the teacher would go, what's wrong, Mikey? And I'd say, I, I don't have a dad. And go, well, why don't you make it? You have an uncle. Make the card for your uncle. And somehow that never quite did it for me. I never really got excited about making a Father's Day card for my uncle. He was a sweet uncle. It was a great uncle, but it just quite never worked for me, and that was hard. The other place I noticed it was on the sports field. I loved playing sports uh, when I was in elementary school especially, and, um, and I would look sometimes on the other side of the fence, and there was dads that were cheering for their kids. And I remember having no one like that cheering for me. Because my mom would come when she could, but she was usually working very hard and working overtime just to try to get by with us, and I had no dad that was cheering for me. That made it really hard growing up. 
As a teenager, I started asking a few more questions about like, Mom, what, what about my dad? And what about this? And what about that? And I could tell sometimes that I was walking on shaky ground when I would ask these questions. And one day she just said to me, oh, our, our marriage was an old. And I, I didn't know what that meant. Um, I learned to mean that it meant that it didn't take place. So you just sort of go to a court and say, like, you know, this thing didn't work and it gets annulled. And so, like, it kind of never existed. And that was kind of weird for me. So I just sort of shut it down, changed the subject, and moved on. And that was my teenage years. Fast forward, 28 years old. I'm almost 30. And uh, I'm working through some family of origin issues in my life. In fact, one day I'm with a friend of mine, and a friend says to me, Hey, Michael, which one of your parents was an alcoholic? And I said, well, neither. Um, my, my mom drank some, and she became a Christian, and then she stopped drinking, and I never knew my dad, so end of story. He went to his bookcase, and he pulled a book off his shelf, and he turned to the back, and he opened it, and the list was 25 traits of an adult child of an alcoholic. Read this. And so I read the list, and I had about 23 of the 25 traits of an adult child of an alcoholic. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. Uh, because I don't, I don't understand what this means. But I, I got to get to the bottom of this. So I had lunch with my mom a couple weeks later, and I came into this lunch with a baited question, and I asked her, hey, Mom, uh, what alcoholics have you known in your life? And she said, your father was one. And I looked back at her, and I said, I knew that. And now her mouth dropped open, because she's like, how, how could he ever know that? And we had a very good conversation that day, interesting conversation that day. A couple weeks later, my mom was at our house, and uh, we got back on this conversation once again, and now the story comes out. Dad didn't die in an airplane crash when I was two. My mom says, uh, he was my boss, and uh, we had an affair, and uh, you're the result of that affair. And um, he's married, he was married, and uh, had six kids. He was, in her words, a good Catholic man. And he chose to stay with that family, which basically meant, she didn't say this, but he abandoned us. And we grew up really poor and really struggled, and I don't think he ever gave us a dime, and it was just really hard growing up. Well, at that moment, I felt more shame than I'd ever felt in my entire life because I was just like, man, what, what's up with that? Um, I, I'm not worthy I'm not, and I came from a background where family was just like everything, exalted. My church background was like family is everything. And all I'm thinking is I'm a bastard. I am worth nothing. And that's what shame does, right? Guilt says you did something wrong. Shame says you are something wrong. And that's what I felt. And those were in the days before, like, Jon Snow made being a bastard cool. <laughs> For those of you that know what I'm talking about. Hushed laughter right there. Then I went to anger. I worked with shame for a couple years. Then I went to anger, and I was, like, really <coughs> angry at a dad that would do that and abandon me. And then I moved to a place of fear. And then literally I moved to a place of apathy for literally a whole decade of just not caring. I'm just like, whatever. Uh, I had no control over that, but whatever. In 2003, I was doing some research out in Palm Springs, which was his last known place where he lived. And I had gotten his death certificate because I had asked when I found out about my dad, is he alive? And she said, no, your dad was an alcoholic. I believe he died 
um, at this place. I got his death certificate, and it had shown that he lived out in Palm Springs. So I went to the Palm Springs Library, and this was like pre-Google search days, and I went to the White Pages. Those of you who remember what a White Pages is, and I found last name, and I went to the White Pages, and I tore the page out of that book with his last name, and it was the same address. And I drove to the house, and I didn't know. It had the same last name as someone living there, but it wasn't his. So I'm like, what do I do? Who, do I? And I drove by the house this way, and then I turned around, made a U-turn, and drove by the house the other way, and then I drove by the house again. And I'm like, do I go knock on that door? Think, think about this. Put yourself in this place. Do you knock on the door? What if his wife answers the door? Hi, uh, my name's Michael. You don't know me, but I'm your husband's bastard son. And I just thought I'd like welcome myself into your family. And I'd love to meet you because I'm like lon- lonely. And uh, I grew up an only child and I have these six half brothers and sisters and I'd like to meet you guys. Could you do that? I couldn't do that. I just couldn't bring myself to that place where I could do that. And so many times over the years, I drove by that house back and forth, but I couldn't bring myself to do that. I even called the phone number, but an answering machine answered, and I'm like, how do you leave a message? It says the same thing. What do you do with that? Couldn't do that either. In 2014, one of my cousins said to me, hey, um, he was kind of an expert in genealogical research, or had a brother-in-law that was an expert at it at least, and he's like, would you like to like find your brothers and sisters' names at least? I'm like, yeah, that would be cool. A week later, I get an email, and now for the first time, I've got a list of my six half-brothers and sisters' names. And uh, I'm like, wow, what do I do with this now? So I go online and I'm trying to search for them. And uh, this is not easy to do because it had their like full legal names. And their names that, um, that, that they used, I don't think, were their full legal names because I couldn't find anything at that point. It was really difficult. I did find a couple people on Facebook and one of them looked like he could be my brother. In fact, our daughter looked at it and goes, Dad, that's your brother right there. So I'm like, well, it's, I feel in the same way. I don't want to just say something and like... Facebook message someone to introduce myself, what do you do again? So I said something kind of cryptic. I said like, hey, my name is Michael, and and I'm doing some family research, family tree research, and I think my mom and your dad worked together back in the 1960s at this place, and I named the place where they work, and I'd love to talk with you. Here's my phone number. Here's my email. Send. Got nothing back. And I realized as I sent it, you know what, they probably think this guy's just a stalker. He's, it's some kind of scam, some phishing scheme. He's just trying to get something from us. And I realized just nothing happened. Shortly after that time, my mom had a stroke, and she went into this dying this long, slow death that I mentioned earlier. And so emotionally, I just had no energy to keep pursuing them until I was on my sabbatical this year. It came back, and we were sitting on the beach one day in August, this last August, and a friend said, hey, Ancestry.com, you know, that DNA research place, they've got, like, a sale, and you can, like, spit in a tube and send it in, and they do relative matching, and this might be kind of cool. And I'm like, you're right. This might be a way I can actually find some of my relatives and do it with, like, see, there's proof here. I'm not just, like, saying I'm something, and you're doubting that I'm something that I'm saying maybe I'm not that thing. So I ordered it. And I got it, and I spit in the tube, and I sent it in, and I'm just waiting. And it takes four or five weeks for this DNA stuff to come back, and I'm like, cool. But I'm on their website at Ancestry.com, and I'm checking. I'm trying to build a family tree. How many of you have done that? Just curious. How many of you have done some of that online DNA stuff for family tree? Okay, just a couple people. But it's really... Really interesting if you get to do it. So I'm so excited, but I'm trying to put my, my dad's name in and my mom's name in and my, my half-brothers and sisters' names that were on the sheet that my cousin gave me, and I'm trying to figure this out, and I'm sitting there really impatient, and now I'm frustrated that no one responded to me like four years ago when I sent these messages out on Facebook. So I'm like, I'm, I don't even have evidence back, but I'm going back to Facebook. I was feeling especially bold that day. 
So I went back to Facebook, and I hadn't been back literally in four years, found what I thought was my brother, found what I thought was my sister, and uh, my brother wasn't very active on Facebook. You can tell, you know, when you see, like, a Christmas picture from five years ago or something, they're just not really active. So, but his wife was really active, so I included her too. And to the three of them, I sent this message. I said, I've known about you for a long time. I'm your half-brother, and I would love to meet you. Here's my number. Here's my email. Send. And just as I sent it, my wife Darlene came home, and she'd been out on some appointments. And she walked in. She goes, hey, honey, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on my family tree. And she goes, oh, that's cool. And she walked out. I said, mm, wait, wait. She goes, what? I said, I put it out there. She said, you put what out there? I said, I put it out there that I'm their half-brother. She goes, you did? And she's standing over my desk. And just as she said that, my phone rings. And I look, lift up the phone and call her ID. It's my brother's wife. And my wife yells, answer it. So I answer it and put it on speakerphone. And she's standing right there. So it's the three of us. And I said, hello. And she goes, hello. She goes, tell me more. And I told her basically the story I just told you in a little bit more detail. We talked for 30, 40 minutes, something like that. And it was absolutely amazing. She goes, your brother Art's going to want to hear this. I'm going to tell him when he gets home for dinner. How'd you like to come home for dinner for that? She's like, hey, honey, sit down for dinner. I got something to tell you. And she did. And he called me afterwards that night after she, his wife had downloaded him the story I just told her. And his first words were when I picked up the phone, hey, brother. I'd never heard those words in my whole life. Hey, brother. We talked, we talked, and he's like, hey, we can do this by phone, or we can get together. Thankfully, he lived in Manhattan Beach locally, and, uh, and we were close, so we ended up meeting in Huntington Beach about halfway for each of us the next day. Him and his wife, Darlene and myself, and for four hours, we unpacked a story of my whole life. I was 55 years old when I found him just in September. That was September 4th of, of just this last year, and... Uh, Kind of interesting because my dad died of cirrhosis of the liver from alcoholism when he was 55 years old. Story kind of comes full circle. And I started unpacking all of that with, with my brother Art. And then he called the rest of my siblings because I have six siblings. And I've got another brother and four sisters. And he called them one at a time and just unpacked all of that stuff. And um, I started realizing some things. There is amazing power in relationship like that. I grew up as an only child, never knew my dad. Um, and this story was something that for me was so full of shame and fear and anger and like I said, but there was something really powerful in it. Maybe I'd ask it this way this morning. What does my story have to do with resurrection? And if you think of resurrection as the ability to take something that's dead and bring it back to life, that, to me, causes me to have more faith in the resurrection, big R, the fact that this Jesus was crucified, killed in a tomb, and came back to life. If that can have power in my life, everyday power, okay? We often talk about power, for, power to save, power for salvation. That's all good. But if it doesn't have power in your everyday, why? And that's what leads me to doubt. But when I realize it can have power in your everyday life, that's really, really a different deal. And it can. Last weekend, my wife and I drove to Arizona because one of my second cousins, who I've now met, because I'll fill you in a little bit on the story. So within two months, I got to meet all six half-brothers and sisters. And here's the fun deal. Every single one embraced me as their brother. 
They were like, we love you. You are part of this family. They even asked forgiveness for their dad, who would be the kind of guy that would abandon us, abandon me and my mom, and said, would you just forgive us? Because we had each other. You had no one. They loved me and embraced me, and it was one of the most amazing stories of healing that I could ever imagine being a part of. And this greater family, my dad was the oldest of eight, and four of them are still alive, and I've got about 200 new family members. Now, if that's not resurrection power, I don't know what is. Reproductive power, that's what that is. <laughs> fertile family. My mom always told me, yeah, your dad was fertile, so I didn't know what that meant. Now I know, this whole family, 200 relatives. But last weekend, we drove to Arizona, because one of my second cousins I'd never met, we had just friended on Facebook, she had a wedding. And she's like, I want you to come, because you're, <laughs> you're the new kid in the family. Can you come to this wedding? I never met. You ever go to a wedding where you never met anybody? It's kind of weird. Um, but you show up, and you're part of the family. We show up at this wedding, and her dad, my uncle, Ar my, my cousin Arnie, he just sees me from a distance, and only from Facebook, knowing me, goes, cousin, runs over, embraces me, and hugs me once again. And now I'm getting to know this extended family. It was just the most amazing experience to be with them. I got to meet an uncle on the way driving out there. I got to meet two aunts. First time I got to meet my dad's siblings, which was amazing in and of itself. And I love asking everyone. I did this to my siblings, and I did this to my uncles and aunts. Uh, if, the first question I like to ask them, or one of the main questions I like to ask them is, what was the first thought that came to your mind when you met me or when you heard about me? When you heard about me, like, what? Because I know what I would be thinking when I, when I heard about me, but what was your first thought? Like, when I asked my sister, one of my sisters, I said, what was your first thought? Her, she goes, my first thought was, Dad, you do that? And then I asked my brother, um, uh, I was sitting over lunch, and he goes, well, first time I heard, he goes, I thought, I don't like it. And I'm thinking inside, uh-oh, where's this going? And then he goes, I love it. And that's what it's been like to be embraced. At the wedding, I'm sitting next to one of my aunts, and I said, what was your first thought when you heard about me? She said, shocked. The next day, I was with one of my other aunts, and I said, what was the first thing you thought when you heard about me? And she said, amazed. And it just causes me to realize um, everybody isn't going to respond the same way. When you take a risk and begin living in resurrection ways, everybody isn't going to respond the same way. They're going to respond differently. Some people are going to be shocked. Some people might want nothing to do with you. And other people are going to be amazed. And they're going to love it. And that's what it's like to take some resurrection risks. To realize you've got a chance. You've got a chance to step out in faith and do something that you might not ever do. For me, it was literally... 25 years of knowing that I had some relatives and being scared to death to knock on a door, make a phone call, or be honest enough in a Facebook post that I could say who I was. I finally got to the place where I'm like, man, I'm getting kind of old. I'm kind of over this other stuff, and life is short, so I'm going to stick it out there. I'm going to take a risk because I believe God is big enough to bring healing and hope. Now, I know there was an equal amount of fear in this, but they might not have responded that way. They might not have accepted me that way at all. And I think, honestly, I didn't know this, but subconsciously, that's probably one reason I hadn't taken that risk for all those years. Because I was scared. What if, I don't think I could handle the abandonment of a father and the rejection of six half-brothers and sisters. I didn't think that consciously, but subconsciously, that's why I didn't do it. 
I finally got to the place where I'm like, forget it. I'm just sticking it out there. And I took the risk. And now as I reflect on it, I'm so thankful it went well. And I know it always doesn't. So I don't want to minimize. Some of you probably have similar stories. Um, I know some of your stories, actually, that um, you've had with family and such. And it can be really rough. But I guess the thing I want you to take away from this whole Lent season and, and resurrection is that resurrection can have incredible power in your life today, this week, this month, this year. Incredible power in your family. Incredible power in your story. Incredible power to redeem things that were kind of messed up and lost. Resurrection is the power to redeem. For me, from abandonment to love. But it requires a huge risk. A huge risk. Every one of our stories requires a huge risk. As, as you think about it, even Jesus had to take a risk. I mean, we, we don't do this too much. Can, can you put yourself in Jesus' place? He knows he's going to get killed. The Romans are not happy about Jesus and what he's done. So he's taken a huge risk. He knows he's going to get killed. He knows how people get killed back then, crucifixion. And he's taken a risk because uh, him and the Father had worked out this resurrection thing. But can't you think the human Jesus is going, oh, Father, I really hope this thing happens. I hope this, can you pull this thing off? He was 100% human. And God. But the human part had got to be going, this is a big risk and, you, and, and I hope this thing works. Because there's a lot of pain I've got to go through here. And this is really, really scary. There's a real cross, real nails, a real spear. Real death, real blood. It's a risk. But if you can take that risk, step out into it, I think we then have an amazing opportunity to take our story, your story, totally different than mine. Thank you for letting me share mine with you, but you have a different story, and your story is sacred as well. You get to take your story and throw it into the mix with power behind it. See, I think our stories are so fragile, and many of us are so scared with whatever our background was, whatever our family of origin issues are, whatever happened to us over many years, the way we were treated, the way we're fearful, the way we think we're weak, that we thought, oh man, if, if people knew who I really was, what I really think about, they'd never, ever love me. When we take that story, that fragile, vulnerable, sacred story, and throw it into the mix with the power of the resurrection, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. But you've got to take that risk. And I just want you to know, what, what, wherever you are today, you might be right there where those disciples were, and some doubted. And it feels like, you know, God just feels really absent from your story right now. I get that. God has felt absent from my story a lot over the last year as I've done a lot of thinking and reflection. He felt very present in finding my six half-brothers and sisters, but he felt real absent in a whole lot of other ways when my mom died, when my friend Craig died, in a whole bunch of other ways. Are you willing, though, to take that risk, step out, take your sacred story, and throw it into the mix and say, this Easter, this season, this, I want to take the power of the resurrection and believe and hope and know that there's redemption on the other side. Let's pray. God, um, whatever it is that we're thinking about right now, meet us in that place um, where we feel very vulnerable, very sad.
you feel in. It's hopeful. I, I, I hope today it's a little hopeful that you might be causing each of us to think of one risk that we could throw ourselves into that maybe we've wanted to do for a long time and we just haven't felt bold enough to do it. And if my story could encourage someone to do that, I'd be so thankful for that. Or maybe it's something that just comes to our mind right now that we're like, wow, what if I, what if I did that one thing? What if I took that risk and knew that I had resurrection power behind it? What would it be like to follow in Jesus' footsteps who through his whole life taken a massive resurrection risk and to know that power is available to me to redeem that story? Whatever it is, God, meet us in that place. Help us to be able to know what it's like to be followers of Jesus in that place. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going to close today. It'll be, it'll be short. Don't worry. You don't have to sit. <laughs> I kept, thank you for sharing, Michael. I, I kept thinking as you were sharing that story, um, if I was in your position, I would have been so scared to share. And I think my reason would have been, I'm going to change everything for them and the way they viewed their family and their father. And, um, but if you, had done, if you hadn't said anything, you would have, you would have taken away from them the opportunity, um, opportunities that you gave them to, to not only to show you love and embrace you, but also for them to, uh, I don't know, they, they, seem, they seem were so grateful that you told them and that they were able to kind of make up for the things that they didn't even know had been broken. Um, and I was thinking about how often I, I don't share things because I'm worried about how other people are going to receive them. And that, that takes, it don't, not only takes away from something I could experience, but something that someone else could learn and love and learn to learn about God and about themselves and um, opportunities for them to grow as well. So you're so brave. <laughs> and um, thank you for the, that story and that inspiration. Um, I'm going to pray for you guys and then pick up your kids and maybe help clean up if you feel so inclined. Father, uh, you fix things that are broken. Um, you, you don't just fix them. You make them more beautiful and stronger. Um, and you turn things into things we couldn't even imagine um, that weren't there before. Thank you, Father, for your resurrection and your example and your love. In your sweet name, amen.